Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of 1 John, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is God's word. We're introduced to a 90-year-old pastor and son of thunder named John the Apostle. And uh, he had three letters or wrote three letters. He also wrote the gospel and uh, received the revelation of the last book of the Bible. And his three letters are written to the churches around Ephesus. And at the time he is writing, the churches are under attack from within. Uh, false teaching wolves have, have come up. And uh, they've actually, uh, some have left and sounds as if started their own fellowship, their own church. And it's a church that's rooted in kind of secret new truths or doctrines and promises of powerful spiritual enlightenment and experiences. Um, Some in the churches that John kind of oversees have left uh, to join them, and others, many more, have remained, but they've remained with their faith shaken a little bit, uh, uncertain, as we saw last week, if Jesus really was who he said he was, even if maybe perhaps even uh, lived. Uh, uncertain of their own salvation, uncertain of what it means to be a Christian and how they ought to behave uh, in response to the gospel, uh, all because of this new, popular, attractive uh, movement that has occurred uh, in and by their churches. So with this letter, John um, intends to comfort the sheep, but also to condemn the wolves once and for all. And he begins with uh, somewhat an an unorthodox way, with a very authoritative tone. He's not greeting, he's not saying, hey, welcome, Um, you know, uh, thank you, and and I'm grateful for you, and this is John. He starts off just going for the jugular, if you will, and declaring that he is uh, in a position of authority to to teach and to proclaim as the only uh, last living Uh, eyewitness to Jesus Christ, the person whom he saw and he heard and he touched, unlike the false teachers who uh, their only claim to authority is probably their charisma and their ability to persuade. So John is uh, addressing obviously this new fellowship which claims to be God-centered, claims to be a fellowship that's that's rooted in, in God and centered in God, and he declares with really without apology that true fellowship with God And even true joy in God begins with the truth of God. Otherwise, those other two are are really impossible. And so he writes these letters to somewhat uphold the core beliefs of Christianity. And that's why he begins with the identity of Christ and the kind of practicals of the gospel. His intent is to protect the purity of the name of Jesus, to protect the purity of what the apostles have been teaching since... They first started teaching in the book of Acts, and up until uh, now, which is a good 30 to 50 years uh, removed from then. 
and to protect the purity of what is described as the pillar of truth, the bride of Christ, the church, and to distinguish what is the church and what it isn't. And so as he does this, you'll see in 1 John he makes a lot of, uh, he's kind of creative, he has a lot of images and a lot of contrasts to distinguish between those who believe in the true Jesus, the true gospel, and the true spirit, and those who are believing a false one. And some of those images that he offers are those that kind of has two categories, those that are condemned, or those who have eternal life, and those who are condemned to eternal death, uh, those who love God, and then those who love the world, those who follow Christ, and then those who follow the Antichrist, those who love their brothers, and those who hate their brothers, uh, those who uh, fellowship or have fellowship in God, and those who just have fellowship, uh, really apart from God. And so here in these verses, beginning in verse 5, he begins to elaborate what the content of the message that he heard um, from and about Jesus, and he uses the image of the contrast of light and darkness. And it, it's this contrast that he uses as a tool to address really uh, the core kind of meaning and doctrine of sin and the position that some of these men have taken on sin and their attitude towards sin as they've taught uh, falsely. The doctrine of sin, the teaching on sin is key and fundamental to the gospel of Jesus. And we don't, I don't know if we often think that way. We think about, oh, he forgave my sins and things like that. But the gospel is and we are familiar with this phrase, is one of grace. We often hear grace preached, and it, you should hear grace preached, and there's nothing, it's beautiful to have grace preached. But grace is freely offered. But grace was not cheaply or freely acquired. And that's very, very important. We, we love to celebrate Sunday, the resurrection, Easter, and all those things, but we cannot have that without a Friday without the cost of, of grace. It was very, very expensive. In fact, it's a grace that costs the most that anything could ever cost. God himself, his son, it cost the son of God his life. And it cost the son of God his life because of our sin. So we can't have a gospel of grace. We can't have mercy without having sin, without understanding sin. I like how uh, uh, there's a, a pastor and a theologian uh, named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you may be familiar with him, wrote a great book called The Cost of Discipleship and some other ones, Living Together. And he, uh, he died in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. Uh, but here's what he wrote about this concept of grace, and I think it, it applies to what we're talking about today. He said that cheap grace, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without required repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. <clears throat> so a wrong understanding of sin will impact all of your attitudes all of your actions, it will govern your relationship, beginning with your relationship with God, and then your relationship even with yourself and your own identity, and your relationship with others, whether they be believers or not. 
The doctrine of sin, I think, in our disposition towards sin is what will often dictate how we behave or not. Now, as John begins in verse 5 here, misunderstanding man's sin and the nature of sin and the doctrine of sin begins, I believe, with a misunderstanding or a perversion of God's holiness, or perhaps just in an ignorance of it completely. And so it makes sense in verse 5, he actually begins with a statement about the nature of God before he gets into a statement about sin and talking about it. So in verse 5, if you read with me, he says this. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have piles of Bibles in the back. They're free to take. Please grab one. Misunderstand. Oh, here we go. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So John begins with the statement that God is light. And we have other statements he makes. God is love and others. He begins with God is light here. In the Old Testament, light is a very common symbol, an image uh, for God. And the Bible says that God is clothed in light, that he dwells in unapproachable light. We see God in a, in a very you know, real way reveal himself in light, either as a bright light, uh, a blinding light, or sometimes a, a blazing fire. Uh, light is associated in the Old Testament and in the New, really, with, with revelation, with God himself, uh, revealing who he is and also his ways. Um, light is, is God's tool for leading men who live in darkness to himself. was where he wants them to be. The Bible describes God's commands, God's teaching, God's spoken word as light. And Job, if you uh, are familiar with the story of Job, the man who suffered greatly, um, he speaks of uh, rebelling against God's word and describing it as rebelling against the paths of light. Solomon himself, again, you may be familiar with uh, some of his proverbs and his, and his books of wisdom, talks about God's word lighting men's paths, being a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Light is, is God's means of opening the eyes of men's minds and men's hearts, and not only so they can see the truth, and see himself, but also it enables them to walk in those paths that he reveals. God doesn't intend his light to just be like, look, there it is. It actually are paths so that we stay, start moving in them. But John here takes light, and it's not only associated with, with, with his ways and, and his revelation, but, um, and not just what he does, I should say, but really with who God is himself, his, his nature, his character, and to make sure, he says, in him there is no darkness at all. So he, he reemphasizes, which is another way of saying, there is nothing evil, nothing sinful, nothing impure, nothing broken, nothing unrighteous in all of God's character. In any way, God is perfect in every way. And as he often does in his gospel, the Apostle John uses light to describe basically God's holiness and God's perfection. Now, God does dwell in, in unapproachable light, but that is more than just some extraordinary Griswold level of illumination that is really bright. Okay, It's different than that. What he is talking about is his blinding goodness. Okay, His blinding righteousness. His, the thing that makes him God and not a creation. The thing that distinguishes him from what he created, 
is his holiness, his complete otherness, his, his perfection and purity that we cannot even comprehend, though we try. God is, is not just, you know, a really good thing either. Like he's just really lit up with good stuff. God is goodness. Okay? He defines what good is. He defines what right is. If you think about that, when God speaks, he's not saying, well, this is good. He's saying, no, this is good. His light sets the standard for everything. Okay? He is not just the top. He is the entire thing. His justice, his perfect patience, his perfect love, his perfect mercy, his perfect grace. If God says it's gracious, it's gracious. If God says it's true, it's true, not kind of true or true most of the time. Okay? God sets the standard. So think about that. The logical kind of conclusion from that is that anything less than the light of God is darker. Okay? So that means that our love, any amount of love, that we can muster, any amount of justice that, that we can exercise, any amount of purity will never, ever, ever be as bright and perfect as God's. It will always be tainted with sin in this life. Always. Anything we do will always fall short of God's glory. That's what it means when God is light. So when we start talking about sin, I know that there are things that we actually think are good in and of themselves. Compared to God, they're still less than Him. Less than His standard. Therefore, in some sense, sinful. Because they're not perfect. It's a different way of thinking about sin. Because we have our lists. I know you all got your lists. Okay? We might as well include everything on that list that you could ever do. Because you will never love perfectly. Ever. And you will hate even when you think it's not hateful. Now, having defined this key aspect of the message, he begins with this God is light. He proceeds then to refute three different liars in the church. Okay? Who ultimately deny this truth. And they deny it different ways. And the three kinds of liars, three kinds of liars in the church, okay, are still here today. They're still in the church today. There's still people making these same claims today. What I like to call them is the pretenders, okay, the deniers, and the redefiners, okay? You may know some of these people. You may be some of these people. I'm not sure. But it's the people that basically make certain claims about sin and therefore making claims about God at the same time. Okay, so you'll have John, you see in verse 6, he says, if we say, so he's kind of putting us, if people claim this big hypothetical, and these are going to be like, yeah, this big softball hypothetical, boom, and he's going to nail it, okay, and tell you what the problem is with that. So verse 6, he says, if we say we have fellowship with him, God, if we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. Okay. 
So what's going on? Because it's important. What's going on, John? Some of these false teachers are claiming to be basking, suntanning in the light of God, right? Yet they're walking in darkness. What's that mean? Well, these people claim to be in true fellowship with God, having started their own little fellowship over here, that God is at the center, and yet they're enjoying fellowship with sin, either hiding it or just boldly living it. But everyone knows it. They're living in darkness. And so he describes these people that, quite frankly, I'm very familiar with, maybe you're not, which are, I'll call pretenders, also known as fake, false Christians. Okay? Pretenders are the people who claim to know God, whether they're in the church or not. So it can be like Oprah-style claim, right? Claim to know God. Claim to be spiritual. Identify themselves even as someone who loves Jesus. Even someone who speaks authoritatively on God's word. Doesn't mean they speak accurately, but they can speak with authority. They can throw down verses like no one's business, right? May even say, I'm a Christian. I've had people knock on my door and say, I'm a Christian. And say, nice badge, Elder Johnson, okay? You know who I'm talking about. They will claim to be Christian. Yet, in the church is what he's most likely speaking to. People who pretend and are walking in darkness and sin. Meanwhile, as they're pretending, like Adam and Eve, it reminds me of them hiding behind their little fig leaves, believing that they're actually hiding something. Right? And God's like, nice try. I see it all. You can't hide. Now, walking in darkness, the idea of walking, because many of us will go, wait, 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 what do you mean? Like, you know, I know Christians who sin. Okay, let's talk about walking in darkness. Walking in, in darkness is not, even just the idea of walking isn't like a moment. Like, you, just don't, you don't go walking in one second. Right? It doesn't just happen like that. Walking is a series of moments. You actually go somewhere as you're walking. This is not just one slip up. This is not just a mistake. This is not even, I don't think, a sinful habit that's difficult to break. There, it's something deeper than behavior. Walking, the idea of walking, walking in the newness of life is used to describe the faith, the new faith, okay, that happens when a transformation of the heart occurs. Paul talks about when you were in your sin, you used to walk according to certain ways, a certain way of living in Ephesians 2. So walking is much more than just behavior. It is a complete disposition towards sin and toward God's holiness. Now, these people who pretend they love their sin more than God all the time while pretending not to. Again, this is an occasional stumbling. Walking carries this sense of moving with intent, living a way whereby you pursue the world more than you do the Word. Now, perhaps you've met people like this. I have. It's interesting that I became a pastor. When I wasn't a pastor, no one ever told me their sin. Okay? Became a pastor, it's like you have a billboard put up that says, please confess to me. So I'll sit down at a coffee with someone, 
like, how you doing? They're just like, and they just puke it out. I'm like, whoa, didn't see that coming. But, you know, we pray. And it's honestly it kind of strange that it didn't happen when I wasn't a Christian. So something screwed up about either my Christianity or Christianity where we're not confessional, but we'll get to that. But I've sat down with people, couples in particular, who, quite frankly, they were non-believers who hated the light, but they proclaimed with all passion and service and giving and flattery about <clears throat> the church that you're a part of, that they love him and love it. And I just have to think like, okay, why would they do that? Maybe it's to gain the approval of men, to feel a part of something. I don't know. But I've sat with these people and listened to these self-proclaimed, identify as a Christian and go, yeah, we're living in sin. With such flippancy. Had those conversations. Like, what? Yeah, we're Christians. Yeah, we're sleeping together. We're living in sin. I mean, verbatim. And I remember listening, sitting to a particular couple, this is several years ago, in my house, and I was shocked. Because I had never experienced, this is, I, it was totally unexpected, knowing who they were. I didn't even know, what to, I was like, kind of loss of words for a second. What do I, what? Yeah, I know, yeah, we're, we're living in sin. So if I was going to go back in time, I know what I would say to him. Oh, so you're not a Christian. To which, you know what they would say? You all know what they would say. Well, yes, we are. Of course we are. Maybe they even give their, you know, bits of evidence to prove with their attendance records and, you know, Awana verses they memorized. I don't know. But they would tell me something. Yeah, yes, we are. And I would say, you're a liar. You're lying to me. Maybe you're lying to yourself. And you're lying to God. And you can probably fool me. You may even be able to fool yourself. There's no way you're going to fool God. You're a liar. And the thing about it, I know people go, oh my gosh, that's just harsh. How could you ever say that? Why are we so reluctant to say that? Why are we so hesitant to go, you know what? You cannot live in light and live in darkness at the same time. You can't. And if they say, oh, I can't say, well, you're not a Christian then. And I'm much more comfortable now preaching you the gospel than I am pretending you're something that you're not. These are not people struggling. I, I know Christians who struggle. I know people who are fighting and who are holding tightly to the cross and claiming grace through faith in Christ and empowerment through the Spirit. These are people who are rebelling and not very quiet about it. A Christian who says that they are walking in the newness of life as the Bible describes I am. I have a new life. I have a transformed life. I have a new heart. I have new desires and yet continue to walk in the way I've described in the oldness of sin is lying about being a Christian. And it's best that we start just acting and believing that. Now, John doesn't offer a solution. Like, well, here's how you stop the lying. 
It's interesting. He just goes and goes, let me just describe the difference to you between those who actually, over in the new church over there, who claim to have fellowship, and those who actually do have fellowship. And here's what he says. He says, verse 7, but, responding to like these people walking in the dark, but if we, but them, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So he talks about Walking in the light, walking with intent, walking with purpose, walking in the light. Those who do not love God do not like His light, and they hide from Him. They hide from Him, not because they don't love His way, because they do not love God. Okay? Now, this is not a matter, we've got to be careful, of walking this perfectly balanced light beam that God has provided for us for fear of falling off. What it is, I believe, is walking humbly so as to be exposed to the radiance of God's light. Now, I do believe that walking that way will and should lead you into genuine fellowship with others, true gospel community, and to not walk that way will leave you isolated, alone, full of shame, despairing. We'll get to the community piece, but John hits this idea very clearly in John chapter 3. You know, the, the great verse, the great football verse, John 3.16, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Beautiful verse. We should read the rest. Okay? As you continue on, it says this. I'll begin in verse, uh, well, I'm going to open up and add one more verse into it. John chapter 3. Let's go on to 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I believe that. You go, he didn't come to condemn. No, because it was already condemned. He says in verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. So those who who walk in the light, those who choose to walk in light, do so, the hope and goal is to do, as John says, in the fellowship with others who walk in God's light. Now just to talk about walking in the light, that's hard. Why? Because when you step into the radiance of God's light, it doesn't mean that all your dirt goes away. It just means that you can see it. Okay? Now, we kind of like, oh, yeah, we're walking in the light. That sounds, I'm just going to do that. Like, you know, that one band saying, who was it? You know, like, oh, walk in the light, you know. It's painful as heck. It is hard to walk in the light. Because it is hard to, like, when you walk in the light, see your weaknesses. See your deficiencies. See your rebellion. 
See your idol. See your failures. See your fears. See your darkest desires. And come face to face with it. That is why people stay in the darkness. They don't want to expose, not even to others at first, we'll get there, but just to themselves. There's a fear there. It is a, similar to, I think, when you're in a dark room and you walk out into the sun, sunlight, and you get that spots, like, oh my gosh, this is painful, right? That's what it's like. It's painful. It is confusing at times. It's embarrassing. But the longer our hearts are exposed to God's light, what happens is two things become very clear. Our ugliness and God's beauty and grace at the same time. Now, the thing about it is um, it's kind of like a uh, progression from a campfire. And I said this last service, and I'll say it again because it's true. When we sit around a campfire, okay, Everyone looks good. Okay? They do. You turn down, like, turn down the light. Why do we do that? Because it makes everything look better. Okay? So at a campfire, I remember youth camps, like, the girls who I knew were, you know, for me, at least not, I wasn't very attracted to them. You turn the light on a campfire, like, yeah, she looks a lot better than I remember, you know? <laughs> it's campfire. It's hiding stuff. Okay? Wake up next morning at, you know, breakfast. You're like, I didn't see that last night. What is that? That's the truth. For yourself as well. I look way better at a campfire. Why do you think we keep these lights dim in here, right? Make everyone look a little bit better. All right. But as you get slowly, you come into, like, room light, which is like yellow light, okay? Then you go into sunlight. You start seeing more and more and more. And then you talk about God's perfect light, where everything is going to be exposed. And know that how painful your eyes to adjust to each of those levels. Your eyes in regards to your sin will never perfectly adjust. You will never see the depth of your sin like God does. But you'll progressively see it more and more. And God's grace will get bigger and bigger as your sin gets bigger and bigger. To the extent where hopefully 1 Timothy 1.15... Remember Paul, the guy that wrote like half the New Testament? The guy in whose 2 Corinthians 11 lists all the things he did for Jesus and sufferings and just it's an amazing resume. You're like, yeah, I haven't really suffered at all. Okay. Who writes, I am the greatest of all sinners and actually believes it. This is also the guy that preached more than anybody on grace. We need to get to a place, which I've said this before, where we actually believe we are the most sinful person in the, in the room. We don't actually, I think most of us actually believe that. We might say that, we don't actually believe that. But that's the hope, because I think it actually impacts not only your position and understanding of grace coming from God, but actually the grace going out from you. Exposure to God's light, though, not only changes your disposition towards your own sin, but also, I think, changes your disposition towards community. That's what John says. He says, we have fellowship with each other when we walk in the light. And it's very true. 
we've done a pretty good job of, of building a church, okay, letting Jesus build a church, but following Jesus and seeing a church built where I think people are very honest about themselves. The scary thing is that the larger the church gets, the less that becomes true. There are people that come to our church now just because we're over 100 people and they can hide. They may not consciously think that, but it's subconsciously there. There are many people who go to much larger churches because no one will ever ask them a question. No one may ever get to the depths of their sin, but they can just sit back and enjoy the show or whatever. And that's not a commentary on the church. God builds the churches the size he wants. But there needs to be an intentional commitment to community that is committed to walking in the light together. I can walk in the light at home. Walking in the light with someone else is very difficult. Exposing my, my sin to someone else, as James talks about confessing your sins one to another, very difficult. Why? Well, I know Jesus doesn't reject me, but I'm not sure about you. If you knew some of the darkness of my story, that's a sin in us that repels us against community. But it's community that we actually need. It's community where you actually begin to live in a place where you don't have to pretend your bad deeds are not there. That the story, you color up the story a little bit so it's not as dark as it may have been. Right? True gospel community is where you come and you say, dude, I am so broken. I am a sinner saved by grace. Welcome. And I, I know the funny thing is, well, like, it's a place that's real. I like that word. Like, it's a place, yeah, it's really real. I actually think it's probably better to describe it as a place that is as serious about sin as it is about grace. There's a lot of churches that are serious about grace. Hey, come as you are. Welcome. And you won't ever hear them talk about sin. Then, John hits the next claim. Another kind of liar. He says, verse 8, If we say the claim, we have no sin. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So there are those who hide their sin, and then there are those who deny that they're sinful. That there remains no actually sin to hide. And what they're teaching exactly, these, these false teachers, is kind of difficult to, to ascertain, but it seems like they're, they're claiming some kind of arrival at a, at a sinless perfection. Um, that they kind of are fully sanctified once they came to know Jesus. That um, they are now perfectly loving Jesus and perfectly loving uh, or perfectly hating sin. Okay? Um, somehow, I believe they came to the very wrong conclusion that being clothed with Christ and having been given a new heart with new desires means that your sinful flesh suddenly disappears. And perhaps they never heard the Apostle Paul's own confession in Romans chapter 7 in speaking about that struggle. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And this is the, the kind of individual who, quite frankly, is, um, it's like a guy, I guess it could be a gal too, who gets married 
and thinks that the fruitless of his relationship is, you know, I got a ring on my finger and I signed a piece of paper, so it's set. It'll just happen. Meanwhile, the relationship is miserable because there was no ever anything. A lot of stuff hidden. No, no pursuit that continued. No growth that was pursued. And honestly, this person that denies it, well, there's no sin to cleanse. I'm, you know, I got it all together now. It's very difficult to do life with and be in community with. Very difficult because it's like being in community with, like, Superman. Okay? Captain Purity. Where, uh, remember, Superman always irritated me. Okay? And Superman irritates me because he's, like, too perfect of a superhero. There's always, like, superheroes have, like, Achilles' heel. His Achilles' heel is some green rock on a plant far away. It's, like, tough. Meanwhile, he's got, like, laser eyes and ice breath, and you can't shoot him, and it's like, seriously, come on. And he's got a cheesy outfit. All these things, just like, that's like the person you're in community with who seems perfect. Like, they're the man of steel. No weaknesses, you know, no struggles. You get in a community, like a circle with them, you know, and you're, you're just, you're dialoguing about life, and you're talking about, yeah, man, I just, I really, I, I struggled recently. I, I'm struggling with anger. I'm struggling with lust. I am prideful. Um, you look around, and the guy's like, yeah, well, I only prayed three times this week. I should have prayed five. You're like, that's it? Seriously? Yeah, I need to probably, you know, concentrate on just working a little bit harder at work because that would be unto the Lord and be, be excellent. That's it? Nothing? There's no struggles? And, I mean, they may go, well, you know, I, I did sin in the past that one time, that big major thing I did, but I'm, I'm beyond that now, and um, now that Jesus saved me, lust and loving my enemies and praying for those presidents that I hate and lying and idolatry and jealousy and envy and fits of anger and pride. I've overcome those. But, wow. I, are you real? That you, de- you deny that, you know, there's just nothing there? And maybe they're like the fake person, they're pretending, but it's a little bit different because they're actively, actively saying, they have no sin. And the problem with this person is that they're a delusional liar. They are delusional. Okay? The sin is there. And they are lying about it, refusing to admit their sin. And needless to say, this, honestly, this person is maybe perhaps one of the most irritating people to be with. They drive me nuts. I don't even know how to deal with this person. John says that the one who is walking in the light goes into a community with other people walking in the light, and there is joy there, there is fellowship there, and there is a proper attitude towards sin, which is to not deny that it's actually there, and to confess it. This is where, quite frankly, I almost totally redid this sermon uh, last night, and then halfway through first service, because this is, I think, the most important aspect. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I was going to change it around, but I don't think I'm going to. This is what I hope you, you, you leave with. Okay. Let me just ask you a question that I've really been asking myself all week. 
Okay, I'll ask it from down here because this is a question I ask myself. I know better. What does your practice of confession look like? Now, I ask that because I'm pretty convinced that 99.9% of us don't have a practice of confession. I say that from my own um, failure. Talking about confessing my sins. I mean, I already know, like, my prayer life is, is not what it ought to be. But even when I pray, Jesus gave instructions to pray, and an aspect of the Lord's prayer was to ask forgiveness. Oh, I ask forgiveness for the big stuff, right? Like, translated, the stuff I get caught doing, <laughs> right? But I mean, actually, um, coming face to face with the sinful flesh that still exists there and confessing. And for me, an aversion to it was just like, it felt so Catholic. It feels so like, you know, I'm going to the confessional every day. Well, I don't know if you necessarily need a priest because we have Jesus. But maybe they have something there. And I know that's a works-based thing and it's, it's not rooted in the gospel. I understand that. But just, I think if I'm honest, I don't spend a tremendous amount of time talking to God about my sin and confessing actively. I probably do like my kids do, which um, they spend more time and energy hiding their sin, denying their sin, or justifying why it wasn't sin. Sound like you? That sounds like me. But catch this. Here's what I believe, and, and you may um, you disagree with me, but that's fine. I get the pulpit right now, so you have to listen. Without regular confession... Without regular confession. What's regular mean? You define it. But without regular confession, I believe that we deny our own unfaithfulness. Our faithlessness. We pretend it's not there. And we also reject Jesus' faithfulness. Without regular confession, I think we do both those things. Confession is powerful. It is transformational. I like to call it, I'm sure someone else called it this, the vomit of the soul. It's cleansing. When you are regularly coming face to face, as the Lord says we should do in our prayers, with your sin, again, you are coming face to face also with the beauty and the depth and the scope of God's forgiveness. And when you're asking for forgiveness, how much is that impacting the amount of forgiveness you give to others? Incredibly. Because you are constantly interacting with God. And how much just is that occurring? I'm going to make a practice of confession. Why? So I can engage with my Father. My holy, perfect Father, whom I do not have the right on my own merits to come before. Confession is an active, not just a spoken, an active humility. It's an expression of dependence. It's a means of claiming the forgiveness of Jesus again and again and again and again and again. We need to be reminded not only of our need, but of a forgiveness in Jesus. And I believe confession is what does that. 
This is not a new sacrifice at the altar. Okay? You're not bringing new sacrifices. This is claiming the one sacrifice that's already been offered. And this is not a matter of making sure you confess every little sin for fear of being rejected if you miss one. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a disposition, an attitude, a heart attitude, a heart commitment, a commitment to forgiveness, and it's forgiveness between a father and a son. No matter what my boys do, my daughter's well, but the boys seem like, you know, they'll be more sinful. Okay, she seems more sanctified. But no matter what my boys do, okay, no matter what they say, no matter what they do, no matter how many hateful things they might speak to me, no matter what they do, they will always be my sons. They will always be part of the Ford family. And if you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, you are an adopted child of God forever in his family. Forever. That should, that's the lens through which you look at confession. It is not confessing so that you can get dad's approval. It's confessing in response to already having it. And I believe, and I think this came from a commentator because it sounds too good to be from me, that a Christian who never asks God the Father for forgiveness, regularly confessing, doesn't have a clue about the ways in which sin actually grieves the Father. One's commitment to confession, I believe, is connected to our attitude towards sin, and our attitude towards sin is directly connected to our view of God's holiness. Confession should be a beautiful thing. Confession should be a relational thing. Confession should be constantly seeking to restore the joy of that relationship that you have. It is the husband and the wife who are married I sin against my wife. I hurt my wife. She hurts me. And confession is the means by which we say, you know what? We're not going to go anywhere, but we're also not in restored relationship right now. Let's restore that joy. Repentance, which is verbally confessing our idolatry and actively turning to God, is not a one-time event that happens at an altar call. Christians are to live a life of repentance. In other words, um, this is not ever done. And though our goal is not to sin, the, the, the fact, and it's a fact, that even as we walk in the light of God, we will never be separated from our sinful flesh until we're dead. And so as believers, we will get, as believers, we will get dirty. We will get dirty. And sometimes that mud is thrown on us. And quite frankly, sometimes we're making our cute little sin-filled mud pies and pounding ourselves with dirt. But Christians accept their identity as dirty, saved sinners and commit to a lifestyle of repentance 
seeking forgiveness from Jesus who says, I can cleanse you, I will cleanse you every time, all the time. We'll close with the last claim. I wanted to close on that confession piece, but this last piece is, I think, important. John hits a a last claim that's a little bit different. In verse 10, he says, If we, again the final claim, say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word's not in us. So now he addresses what what I'm going to understand or call the, the redefiners. Those who claim to not have sinned at all. Now, for me, this sounds familiar or similar to those people who believe they haven't sinned since coming to know Jesus. But the redefiners, I actually think, are the people who leave the church altogether, because this is what's happened in John's context. They've gone and started their own little fellowship. We see that today. And they leave, especially when they become confronted with their sin. And instead of confessing, instead of repenting, instead of saying God's word is right, they redefine sin to fit whatever suits their lifestyle, their personality, or their desires. In other words, what you're calling sin, John, isn't really sin. Things have changed. And John, in this case, he doesn't tell them that they're liars. I think it's actually much worse. He calls them unbelieving slanderers, making God himself out to be a liar. And you can only make God himself out to be a liar by basically saying your word is actually wrong. And what becomes authoritative in your life is no longer God's word. You and I do not confess if we don't have a practice of confession because 1 John 1 9 is not authoritative in our life. That's all there needs to be. But why should I confess? What's the theology behind that? 1 John 1 9 is pretty darn clear of what we ought to do, even if we don't fully understand it. And those who redefine change what dictates what is true, what is right, what is good for the Christian life or for the non Christian life. And what's authoritative in their life becomes culture or their experience. The question for all of us, whatever truth you happen to hold that um, about sin or about God, how much, here's a red flag for you, how much scripture do you have to deny in order to actually hold to that doctrine? It's a pretty good red flag that there might be a problem. I don't need to confess anymore. Really. Let's read 1 John 1 and see what he says. Let's read the Lord's Prayer and see what he says. He closes, and I'll go right into two, and I will actually will close out. He concludes his argument by, he's been Boom, that's wrong. Boom, that's wrong. Boom, that's wrong. And then he changes his tone from a son of thunder to a a pastoral father. And he ends in chapter 2 here. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I love that verse. That's a beautiful verse. 
He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That first verse is a verse that you should teach your children early on. I don't want them to sin, but if you do, you have Jesus. John concludes here by, I think, clarifying exactly what he means and what he doesn't mean because there's some fear maybe of it being misunderstood. Um, He's just told everyone to stop kidding themselves, admit what God already knows, that you're a sinner and confess. At the same time, John wants to make sure he's not giving them some kind of cheap grace license to say, well, I'll just, you know, if I sin, I'll just confess. And therefore sin knowing that you can ask forgiveness later. So he's a little fearful of that. So he says, no, I'm writing this so that you won't sin. And that's why we should all be preaching. So you'll stop sinning. So you'll stop dishonoring God. So you'll stop believing the lie that something other than God and His way will make you happier or more content. But then he speaks the encouraging thing into our reality. Here's the reality, peeps. Let's be real, okay? We sin. We sin. I have a desire not to sin, but I sin. Some of us sinned on the way to church today. Some have sinned while we've been here. Right? And if we understand sin as anything dark than the light of God, we're all wrapped up in it pretty well. He simply wants people to recognize that they've sinned and confess it. And confess it with confidence, knowing that Jesus stands as our divine lawyer, our legal advocate with the Father, defending us from God's wrath. The idea of propitiation is it is the idea of, of absorbing that wrath. God's wrath is real. And the pretenders want to hide from God's wrath. The the uh, denier thinks that they're fast enough to dodge God's wrath. And the redefiner basically pretends that it doesn't exist or argues that it doesn't exist. The Christian says, God's wrath is real, and I plead guilty, deserving. And then he looks to Jesus, his lawyer, and says, And Jesus, praise God, Jesus doesn't begin to give bits of evidence from my life as a reason to why I should be declared innocent. Well, here's some pictures. Ooh, that's, whoa, we put that one down. Uh, here's some trans... Ooh, shoot. You figure out Jesus, my lawyer, has nothing but reports of my sin to offer? He's like, let's just keep that table, right? No, he lays it out there, and he doesn't try to argue that I'm innocent. He doesn't try to argue that I'm innocent. He doesn't try to argue with God about, well, what do you, what's the exact definition of sin that we're working with here? Right? That's what lawyers do. He doesn't try to skirt it. He doesn't, he doesn't try to go, you know what, um, let's change the rules a little bit. I know you said that, you know, require a sacrifice for sin and death. I, I know that was then. Let's change the rules. And as I said, he doesn't ask to declare me innocent. 
because there's too much evidence. Instead, he agrees with God to say, yes, he is guilty. And then he atones for my sin and takes God's wrath and ensures my pardon by his blood. Grace is expensive. And these last verses provide both a hope and a caution. The hope is knowing that if we sin, intentionally or unintentionally, if, when we sin, we always, always have Jesus to save us from God's wrath. And it's also a caution for the pretenders and the deniers and the redefiners out there that if we sin, when we sin, we only have Jesus to save us from God's wrath. Don't make the mistake of going before the judge and trying to offer some evidence of your righteousness. You ain't going to cut it. Every exhibit you could possibly put up there is covered in sin. And as you come up to the table, which we do every Sunday, know that in very real way, it's like coming up before the judge. And it is a confession. So if you're not a believer, this isn't for you. You're still pretending, denying, redefining, I don't know. What you need to do is admit that you're a sinner and that you're not going to cut it. As we come to the table for believers, you are confessing and admitting your sinfulness amongst family, saying, I am broken, I'm rebellious. The best I can ever do will always fall short of God's standard. Thereby, I plead for God's forgiveness through the blood of Jesus to carry me through today, not just Sunday for 45 minutes, but every day. I encourage you to begin a practice of confession, not as some checkbox, some works-based thing that you can work your way to God, but think of it as sitting in relationship with God the Father, coming face-to-face with your sin and face-to-face with your forgiveness every day.